chapter 10. 1 Samuel chapter 10. And we're going to keep going in our series uh, in the book of 1 Samuel. It is extremely modern, the book of 1 Samuel. It is right uh, front page news, you could say, uh, because of the context. And I, I've tried to keep that in the forefront of all this to help you understand you know, sometimes we read the Bible and, and because we only read bits and pieces of the Bible and we don't read it contextually or systematically or even sometimes chronologically like I normally read it through the year, uh, we lose the context. And I will tell you that if you lose the context of Scripture, you're losing a whole lot of truth. You've got to keep that context. For instance, this, this week, even in my own devotions, as I'm uh, just my own personal reading, um, as I go through the book of First, Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and it goes through the prophets that were prophesying during that time, I started thinking to myself, you know, a whole lot of people would not uh, read the Old Testament normally. A lot of people don't. Some people are intimidated by it. Some people get lost in it. I've done that. I've been there, done that. Look for a life preserver, and there is none. <laughs> there, there really isn't sometimes. Um, but the reason that God put the Old Testament there, you said, well, but we're New Testament Christians. Why do we have to read the Old Testament? By the way, this is free. It's not the message. <laughs> um, why, why do we need to read the Old Testament? I will tell you, as I read the Old Testament over and over and over again, I think this is my 23rd time through the Bible, and I say that humbly because I love the book. I think the Old Testament, the reason that God preserved it, wasn't just so that we would know that God created all things. It wasn't just so that we would know about the nation of Israel, but is that we would know who God is in his totality, at least as much as we can comprehend. Now, I will tell you that there's not a different God in the Old Testament than there is in the New Testament. He's the same God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. How many believe that? All right. Now, if that's the case, then you have to look at him in his entirety. So you have to back out and say, okay, I'm reading all of this about these kings, and I'm reading all of this about the begets, and I'm reading all of this about the nation of Israel. What has that got to do with me? Probably not a whole lot, but it has a whole lot to do with God. It has a whole lot to do with what pleases him. And in many cases, especially in the Old Testament, what does not please him. All right. Now, in light of that, we come to the book of First Samuel. It's the end of the period, as we know, as the what? The judges. Now, the period of the judges is every man. Even though he's living in Israel, even though he was raised Jewish, even though he was raised with Jehovah God Almighty as the Lord God of Israel, even that, even though he has that knowledge, every man was doing that which is right in his own eyes anyway. All right? Now, that's why the period that we're discussing is so modern. It's because everybody's doing that today. Sadly, even Christians. They're doing whatever's right in their own eyes. Now, that's the beautiful part about the New Testament is that it bridges. Okay, this is what you thought was right. Jesus came to show you what was right. Jesus came to show you a greater way of living, not by the law, because we're not saved by works of righteousness, which we are done, but according to his mercy has he saved us. So what does the New Testament show of God that's different? A completely different side of God, not a different God. It just shows a different side of God. The beginning of it shows the holiness of God and the justice of God and the fact that God's word is going to come true and that God is almighty and he's all powerful and that he is always going to have his way. The New Testament shows us that it's a better way anyway and shows us that there's a bridge. And the only way I can have a relationship with God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, I thank God for Jesus today and I thank him for the cross of Calvary. And I thank him that we can have the Holy Spirit of God to help us navigate through the passages of Scripture. Now, look again. I'm not saying exclusively that the Old Testament is only all about God, but it is the Bible. So it not only is all about God, but at the same time, when we read passages about Israel or about an individual, then God says, hey, now I want to show you something about yourself. Now I want to show you something about my plan in yourself. And that's where we find ourselves. All right. First Samuel chapter 10. Last week, we talked about another man, and that is. The fact that God said to Samuel, look, the Holy Spirit of God is going to come upon you and you're going to be another man. We talked about that change. We said that the Holy Spirit of God is the agent of change. And, and, and we said that, man, when we get saved, the Holy Spirit of God comes in us and God begins that work in us, both to do and to will of his good pleasure. Then we talked about the aspect of change. Remember that? We talked about it first has to start where? In the heart. The Bible says, keep thy heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life. 
And so as we think about the heart change, then it's obvious through the passage of Scripture that God says, now look, when your heart is changed by my presence, it's going to come out because you can't come in contact with the with the eternal God and not be different. Somebody say amen. That's just a fact. So Saul has the spirit of God come on him. And now he starts doing things and going places that he wouldn't normally do. And some people come and they say, hey, look, I know the son of Kish. Who is this? This is not the Saul that we know. He's not acting like the Saul we know. He's not going to the places of the Saul we know. Now, all of a sudden, he has different priorities. So they all take notice of that. And by the way, we said at the end of the message last week, that's what God wants to do in all of us, is that he wants to change our lives in such a way that we would not be the same way today as the day that we got saved. Right? Why? Because the gospel is not supposed to stop in you. The change that God wants to bring to the world does not end with you, else we would not be here. We would get saved and immediately go to heaven. Why? Because that's the end goal. The end goal is not to get you to heaven. The end goal is that God is not slack concerning his promise to some in slackness, but is long suffering toward usward, and that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So the gospel doesn't stop with me. But the gospel is not going to be clear if I'm living my same old life. Does everybody get me? Everybody tracking with me today? So we come to 1 Samuel chapter 10 and we come to verse 17. And we want to look now that we ended last week at the adversary of change. All right. The adversary of change. 1 Samuel chapter 10. Notice, if you will, beginning in verse 17. Samuel called the people together unto the Lord to Mizpah and said unto the children of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all the kingdoms and, the, and of them that oppressed you. And you have this day rejected your God. Let me just say this. That's a very scary day. For anybody, even Christian, to say, I no longer believe this. I no longer want to follow Jesus. I want to do my own thing. That's a very scary day. Okay. You've rejected your God who himself saved you out of all your adversities and your tribulations. And you've said unto him, nay, but set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near to the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin was taken. When he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri, uh, Matri was taken and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. And when they sought him, he couldn't be found. Therefore, they inquired of the Lord further. if The man should yet come thither. And the Lord answered, behold, he hath hid himself among the stuff. And they ran and fetched him thence. And when he stood among the people, he was higher than any of the people from the shoulders and upward. And Samuel said, by the way, let let me just go back. The reason that he was hiding is because he didn't think he could do it. And if 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 he's anything like me, he probably in many ways didn't want to. Okay, we talked about this at the very beginning of the message uh, last week and the week even before that, in that when God calls you to do something that you don't think that you can do. He's always going to equip you to do what you think you can't do. Moses. Noah. Daniel. All of the people that God used didn't step up and say, I can do this. I got Goliath. God. No, they didn't do that. They they all recognized the fact that the battle is the Lord's. Okay. So he's hiding among the stuff. They go in there. They fetch him. And now he's higher than any of the people from shoulders upward. Verse 24. And Samuel said to all the people, see ye he, I'm sorry, see ye him whom the Lord hath chosen, that there is none like him among the people. And all the people shouted and said, God save the king. Then Samuel told the people a manner of the kingdom. And he wrote it in a book. And he laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. Now notice the last two verses. Okay. So, so God is uh, publicly anointing Saul now, and he's put him in the position. Verse 26. And Saul also went home to Gibeah, and there went with him a band of men whose hearts God had touched. Look at verse 27. But the children of Belial said, How shall this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us again another day and an opportunity to serve you, to worship you, 
And Lord, we just want to lay our lives before you right now and ask that you please speak to us. Would you take just 30 seconds with your head bowed and eyes closed and ask the Lord to speak to your heart personally this morning? Just ask him. Lord, this is the most important part of this service. And we're reading out of the most important thing in the universe as you have honored your word above your own name. And Lord, as we open it, we pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth, that you would minister to our soul. We ask that you would speak to us, Lord. And we promise that if you speak, that we will listen and obey. We ask that you'd give us as your people understanding. We ask, Lord, as we leave here, that you would give us wisdom to rightly apply the word of God. We ask, Lord, that you would bless this place. You would bless us with your presence because you are mighty to save. Lord, if there's one here this morning that has not received Christ as their Savior and they're not sure that their sins are forgiven, that they have a home in heaven, I pray today would be that day of salvation. Lord, for those of us that have been saved, we pray that you would continue your sweet work in us through your Holy Spirit, that we would leave here today more like Jesus, that we would become another man, the man Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that you'd help me to get out of your way, and I pray that you would use me as your vessel. Fill me with your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. In our text, God's using Samuel to help Saul, and ultimately, God is working to help his people to come back to him. I want to say that again. Our text, we see that God is using Samuel to help and to prepare Saul, but ultimately, there's a bigger picture involved. We talked about that last week. We said that many times, remember I used the telescope and I had everybody do this? Many times, what we do is we get in our, in our mind's eye just this one thing, and it's normally us. And, and, and that's our tunnel focus is that, OK, what's God going to do for me or what's in it for me as a Christian? But God sees far beyond that. He sees the people that are connected to us. He sees the people that we come in contact with. He sees the people that we work with or we live next door to. And the change that God wants to do in Saul is not just for Saul's sake. Remember the period that we're living in. It's the judges. And they've said No, we don't want God. Now, here's the crazy part. They may not want God, but God still wants them. And you could turn your back on God. And the great, the great, there's several underlying layers of this passage. You could turn your back on God and you can live as backslidden as you want. But I will tell you, though you would turn your back on God, God will never turn his back on you. And that's awesome. That's wonderful. It's amazing. And it's another aspect of God. His long suffering toward us. He is patient and and kind. His kindness doesn't change. The way you treat God doesn't change his love. It doesn't change his kindness. It doesn't change his purpose. You may be acting like a little baby and a brat and turn your back and say, I hate you, God, and I don't want to live and I don't even know or whatever. But it doesn't change who God is. Amen. Now, that being the case, in order for Saul to fulfill God's purpose, he has to become another man. He has to change in order to change And in order to change, the Spirit of God has to change him, and he does, according to the Bible. Now, the change that God wants to make in all of us is that we would become like Christ, another man. And all of that God wants to accomplish, all of that, uh, all that God wants to accomplish in you, there is a greater reason for it. As I said, he wants the light, your light, and he wants the salt, your salt, to affect the world around you. So there's a much bigger picture. Now, as much as God wants that change to take place, Satan does not. As much as God wants you to become another man, Satan would be just as thrilled if you stayed the same person. If you stayed the same exact way and your life was the same way, the same desires, the same direction before you got saved. He is animately opposed to your life being salt and light. He is against you being any different from the day you were born again and will by any means, try to keep you from becoming like Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians chapter 11 and verse three. But I fear lest by any means as as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. 
so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Do you understand that? The, the Bible tells us that Satan will listen by any means necessary, beguile you, so that you can be removed from the simplicity of becoming like Christ. Now, as the Spirit of God descended upon the Lord Jesus, for instance, he was led, according to the Bible, by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of Satan. Now, let's just say it out loud, though some of us are already thinking it. If Satan went after the Lord Jesus Christ, then certainly he'll go after those who endeavor to be like him. Right? Romans 8, 29 says that I've been predestined. The plan for my life has been predetermined that when I get saved, that I need to become like Christ. If that's God's predetermined plan, then Satan is determined to keep that from happening. And he will by any means beguile you to keep you from fulfilling that plan. The baptism, somebody said, of a believer is in many ways a declaration of war against Satan and his kingdom. Any Christian living life under the influence of the Holy Spirit then is a threat to hell. Satan then has no dealings with a backslider. Everybody track with me there? He has no dealings with a backslider. He doesn't have any dealings with the wonder or the prodigal or the unwilling or the unyielded. Why? Because they're not a threat to hell. A Christian living out of the will of God with their back turned on God, though God may still be pursuing them in his loving kindness and through his mercy and by his precious grace, Satan has no dealings with them. Why? Because God's in pursuit of them. They're not in pursuit of God. Their direction's already going their way. Even though God may be in pursuit, Satan's happy with that situation. But what he's not happy with is the saint that is on his knees or her knees praying to an almighty God. What he is not happy with and what he is determined to be against is the one who is completely surrendered. The one who is saying, God, I know that I'm not like Christ yet, but I'm determined today to become more like Christ than I was yesterday. Father, use me for your will. Use me as light. Use me as salt. Do whatever you want to do in me. Take the rest of my life that I have not yet yielded. Oh, he doesn't like that. Satan doesn't like that. Those who've decided to follow Jesus, however, to learn of him, to grow in knowledge and the grace that he affords, those who shine their light like a city on a hill for the glory and the kingdom of God are public enemies. Now, Satan didn't want Saul to succeed. All right. But it wasn't just about Saul to Satan as well. It was also about Israel. Do you understand all this? You see, since Genesis chapter three, Satan has been trying to make sure that people don't follow the seed of a woman that's going to be Jesus. And so the enemy thing has been a constant since the very fall of mankind. Since sin was ushered into the world, Satan has been doing the same work. Now, I want you to see this here in the passage. Now, get it. Saul is maybe fearful. Saul is insecure, doesn't feel like he can do this. But God wants to use him and God wants to be merciful to Israel in light of that. Do you see this? They've turned their back. God says, okay, you reject me. You want to use the king. But guess what, Mike? I'm going to use the king anyway. I'm going to work all things together for good. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it for my namesake. He confesses that over and over. God does in the Old Testament. For my namesake, I'm not done with you, Israel. For my namesake, I'm going to be merciful to you. And I'm going to be merciful to you through the very king that you chose. Wow. What a God. So now Saul is anointed. Now Saul is in front of the people. Everybody says, God save the king. In fact, God goes to the extent of putting a band of men around him, Joel, whose hearts were also touched by God. We'll get to that in a little bit later. And so as he leaves, now all of a sudden in your mind, you're thinking, wow, everybody's behind me. But not everybody was behind him, was it? Do you know that scripture will reveal Saul's weakness? We'll get into that a little bit later. And it starts right here in verse 27. But the children of Belial. You know what Belial is? Evil. It's nasty. It's people who are the spawn of Satan. It's people who decide, you know what? Uh, I don't like the way this is going. And I don't like anybody that's going to try to lead people to God. So I'm going to become an instrument of Satan just like Saul is an instrument of Christ. That's the whole idea. How's this, how's this man going to save us? And they despised him. 
and they showed it outwardly by not bringing any presents. That was natural. We're going we're gonna to support this as our king. We're going to show him our appreciation. We're going to show him, hey, we're for you. We are so glad to have you as our sovereign, and we're going to follow you. And they're like, no. They just stood back in the corner like this, and they brought him no presents. And don't think that Saul didn't see them or notice them because the Bible says that he held his peace. Now, let me ask you a question. If you didn't want the job to begin with, and you got the job anyway, and you were all excited because you had a bunch of people around you that were trying to encourage you, and you thought you had the heart of everyone, and then way back in the corner, let's say you saw 8, 10, 12, 20, we don't know how many, cross their arms and go, you saw them doing this. You think it bother you a little bit? Uh, yes. I know it would bother me as insecure as I am. I'd be like, do I have something in my nose? Did I, have I done something wrong? We'd do this. You'd get home and Saul's wife would say, have I offended them some way? Did I say something wrong in a text? Did I post something wrong? Because they didn't even come, they didn't, they didn't even, they didn't say hi or thanks for playing. They didn't say anything. That would bother you, wouldn't it? Well, that's how Satan works. Satan will use a thing or a person to have his way just as much as God would have his way. The Bible says, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary. Because your adversary, and then he names who it is, the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Listen, verse 9. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing this, that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Now, as we talk about the adversary of change, I want us to understand in our daily choice to surrender to the Holy Spirit of God, we also cannot be ignorant of the devices of Satan, who will by any means. So we can't be ignorant of the devices or the means whereby Satan uses to hinder others. So I want to give you several thoughts today about, okay, first of all, let's settle the fact that we're here to say, Lord, I surrender all. Lord Jesus, you're not just my Savior, you're my Lord, and you are the God of heaven. And you saved me by your grace and through your mercy, through your shed blood, you took my sin in your own body on the tree. That I should be dead to sin and live unto righteousness because I know how I'm healed. It's through your, your wounds, your stripes. So I surrender. I'm presenting myself to you fresh and anew at the first day of the week as a sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. And I'm doing it because it's reasonable for me to do it. And I don't want to be conformed to this world. Lord, what I want to be is transformed by the renewing of my mind. So that when I leave here, the will of God will be perfect, good, and acceptable to everyone else. This is what we're saying about it. Everything that you've given to me, I want you to give to somebody else. Because I realize the gospel doesn't end in me. That's why we're here. Now, in light of that, Satan is the enemy. So how do we respond? Okay, we know we're supposed to surrender to the Holy Spirit. What's the Bible say about how to respond to Satan? It says resist. Now, we don't have a problem resisting with a lot of other things in our country right now. We really don't. We'll resist a group of people or we'll resist a certain law or we'll resist a certain party in our politics. But how about if we just set all of that aside and just think for a minute that even a good or a right law or a good and right party or a good and right individual can be used of Satan to get me to turn my back against God. Now, understanding that and doing something about it is two different things. Intentions don't win battles. And they don't make for a life except an empty one. So let's think about how do we respond? Well, let me give you three real quick things. First of all, we need to respect him because he's dangerous. We've got to respect who he is as the prince of the power of the air because he's dangerous. As a serpent, Satan deceives. As a lion, he devours. And we cannot afford to underestimate his power or abilities. Why? Because he is a dangerous enemy. The Bible refers to him as Abaddon or Apollyon. That is a destroyer. That doesn't sound like somebody that you shouldn't respect. Uh, look, the fact of the matter is Ronald Reagan was a great, uh, uh, an individual that stood against the enemy of communism. All right? But he respected their power. That's a fact. You cannot take your enemy for granted and not have respect 
for what they can do. Somebody say amen. The Bible calls him a destroyer, but he also calls him an accuser. You see, there's all kinds of things going on in the realm of the unseen that you and I don't normally think about. That we don't address, that we don't pray about. And yet the Bible says that he has great power and, and intelligence. And by the way, a whole host of demons who assist him in his attacks against God's people. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Now remember, please don't lose the context, though we're talking about the adversary of change. It's because of the agent of change that lives inside of you that we have to talk about this. So God is for my change. Satan is against my change. All right? He's not for it. In Ephesians chapter 6, in verse 10, this is how Paul sews up his letter to the church at Ephesus. Great believers. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now look, all of those phrases in there, principalities, powers, and rulers, they have everything to do with authority and ability. And if I just step back and I don't treat him with respect that he, that is due because of his power and ability, then I've already lost. I, if I don't know my enemy, Sun Tzu, the warlord of Africa, said, if I do not know my enemy as well as I know myself, then I will never win a battle. If I choose to be ignorant to my enemy and not respect what he can do, I will never win a victory. All right, now watch. Look at the last verse here in verse uh in verse 13, wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And then here's a phrase that should be underlined in your Bible. And having done all to stand. Now, let me ask you a question. Would Paul be so forthright in talking about what we need to do in order to resist Satan if Satan wasn't a real threat? Man, he's reiterated some things over and over and over again here in just about three or four verses that would cause me, if I was sitting in the in the book uh, or in the church of Ephesus, to go, "Wow, that sounds like what I've been going through." Watch, Paul and Peter's admonitions about Satan are written to people who've experienced his attack. They knew all about persecution. They knew all about what the world was trying to do in their life to keep them from doing all that God was doing in their heart. Does that make sense? So Paul and Peter are both inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, who is the agent of change to make sure that God's people are aware and equipped for the adversary of change. Does that make sense? So we got to respect him because he's dangerous. You don't go, look, if I remember we were in North Carolina, I was stationed in North Carolina for the first several years of, uh, while I was in the Air Force. And uh, we were over to a friend's house and we were like, oh, let's go for a walk. So we went for a rock, walk. And as we were walking around the corner from his house, I just, you know, we, you know, just like everybody else, we look at their lawns or look at their houses or whatever, or their cars they're driving. And I looked down the side of their house and there was a lion in the backyard. Now, I, I will just tell you, that's not normal. Just it's not. It's just not normal. And, and so as I looked down there, I was like, I literally stopped and I said, wait, Rick, did I see you? Do I, is that what I think it is? He goes, yeah, that's a lion. And I said, so you're allowed to have a lion as a pet in your backyard in North Carolina? You can just have a lion? He goes, well, I don't know if it's legal or not, but he has it. I mean, full grown, full lion's mane. So I was standing there and I was just looking at him. And if you've never been in the presence of a lion, it's amazing. They are very commanding. Their eyes and the whole, just their whole, the, the way that God made them. No wonder they're called the king of the jungle. They, though they're lazy and they don't do the, the, let all the ladies do all the hunting for them. I don't know how that works, but um, just bring me my meat and I'll sit here and eat. You guys can go kill it, cook it. and Oh, wait, that's what most of us do, right? We take our wives for granted. Anyways, you know what happened? That dude let out a roar. And if you've ever been close to the presence of a lion when he roars, it resonates through your bones. And you, if you have it to that point, instantly respect what that bad boy can do. Now listen, the Bible says your adversary as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Why? It's to keep you from doing what God wants 
your life to be done with. He wants to keep you from becoming like Christ because he knows that if you're like Christ, he's no match. He knows that. He knows that every life that you touch is going to be changed. And then there's another one. And then there's another one. Can you imagine the fit? By the way, we talk about we talk about if one sinner repents that all of heaven rejoices. Okay. In Acts chapter 20, uh, Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people got saved. Can you imagine the rejoicing in heaven that day? Right? At the same token, can you imagine the screams and the screeches and the roar from hell? The world never had seen anything like Jesus Christ raised from the dead. And as soon as the story was told, 3,000 people got saved. The world had never seen that. The devil was not prepared for that. But he's had 2,000 years to prepare for you. I think we need to respect him. Because it's worked. Oh, yeah. He couldn't control Pentecost. Yeah, he lost 3,000 souls and 5,000 after that. And multitude, some people say upward around twenty or 50,000 people had been saved in a relatively short period of time. And the gospel went across Europe and all through, all through Western Asia. And all through that region, Satan lost ground. And he has been fighting like tooth and nail since then to make sure it never happened again. And he's won a lot of those battles. Now I want you to think about that. Because that is a power that we have to recognize. And we have to respect. Secondly, we need to recognize him though for what he is. He's a pretender. We've got to recognize him for who he is. Now, I, 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 in no way, shape, or form am I saying that you should discuss anything with Satan. We saw how that turned out with Eve. I'm not saying you should go home and if something happens, you should be like, now, Satan, you listen here and start a dialogue with that loser because he's a liar and he's going to convince you Now you say, well, how do you know that I can't overcome him? OK, let, let me just get this straight. So you think in a fallen state that you can resist Satan when Eve couldn't do it in a perfect state. OK, so let's just dial it back a little bit and thinking, OK, now, wait a minute. I don't think I can go toe-to-toe with the guy that stood with the only two per- perfect people who ever walked this planet that were human beings, and they lost. So I think I'll just, I'll just recognize him for who he is. He's a pretender. Look at John 8, 44 in your notes. The Bible says, Year of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. You've got to recognize that. You've got to think in your mind, okay, he's a liar. He's a liar. He's a liar. He's a liar. Let's say that. Satan is a what? He's a liar. He's a what? He's a liar. And he's a jerk. It's okay to call him that too. All right? Why? Because he's your enemy. And he's trying to destroy all that is good and righteous and represents Christ in you. Now, knowing that, here's a couple of thoughts. First of all, his strategy is to counterfeit whatever God does. Whatever God does, he wants to counterfeit that, all right? Um, anybody in here ever work in a bank? Anybody ever? You work in a bank. They teach you how to look at and, and, and uh, uh, how to notice counterfeit bills? What? Yeah, so in order to, you jumped ahead of me. Did they give you counterfeit training? The answer is yes. Okay, well, go to the, I'll come back to you later, all right? <laughs> and I watch. He's a counterfeit. So what does that mean? He wants to create an illusion, which is a lie, of whatever God's will is, or anything that would represent God or Christ, even though it is not. Does that make sense? All right, now watch. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13, here's the power of Satan. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. So if I read that correctly and I understand it, the Bible says that Satan can appear and anybody that works for him can appear in the form of something that is righteous. Okay? But it's not altogether righteous. Now, that means that Satan sells his wares to God's people. 
He wants you to believe a lie that's not real. He has an alternative to God's will for your marriage. And he wants to pose that for you. He may show it to you on the internet. He may show it to you at work. I heard of another pastor recently, again, who had to walk out of the pulpit. He had to resign his pulpit because of immorality. We'd been there a very long time. Why? Satan got to him. Satan kept showing him enough lies. Not just in what he was looking at, but his own life. So that he just started believing and formed a theology and a life character based on lies. And the next thing is normal. He acted on those lies. And now he's out of the ministry. Why? Because Satan's a counterfeiter and he's powerful. And he's a liar. Satan has an alternative to God's will for your family. He has an alternative to God's will for how and where you work. Satan has an alternative to God's will for you and your church. Satan has an alternative to God's will for how you spend your money and give. He has an alternative to God's will for your life, period. And if you believe his lies long enough, it will change your view of God. And that's when your decisions become, listen, destructive. Now turn in your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 3. You guys don't mind using the Word of God, do you? Just open it up. Go back to Genesis. He said, where's, I got to go to the table of contents. It's right there. Go to table of contents, turn right a few pages, you'll find Genesis. Go to Genesis chapter 3. And I've already ill-spoken about my great-grandmother Eve, but we're going to read about it now. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he, not God, the serpent. The serpent said to the woman, Yea, hath God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now look up here just for a minute. God had said, I don't want to take this too long, but I don't want to take it for granted. God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And he put them in the Garden of Eden. And he said, look, I've given you all of this garden. There's one tree in the middle of it that I don't want you to eat. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, at first thought, you say, well, why does God not want them to be understanding about what's good and evil? That has nothing to do with it. In fact, the Hebrew would tell you that the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not so that they wouldn't know it. It's so that they would not independently determine what was good or evil. You understand the difference? He put it there so that they wouldn't say, well, I think this is right for me. You can't say that it's not right for me. Sound familiar? He, he did it so that they would understand, look, I need you to trust me to tell you what is right and wrong. I need you to trust me what is good and what is evil. So don't eat of that tree because you'll determine what's evil and not evil for you aside from me. That was God's point. Now the devil comes along and, and by the way, he says, look, I want you to eat of all of it, but not that one. And the day that you eat, thou shalt surely die. That was God's word. Now watch. Satan comes along and says, yay, but didn't God say that you should eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman at this point said to the serpent, by the way, she shouldn't have engaged in this. She should have been like, why am I talking to a snake? Right. But she goes along. Well, God said you should not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, uh, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat of it. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse 4, And the serpent said to the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know. Wait a minute. Do you think if I'm Eve that I need to find out from a snake what God knows or doesn't know? You think I'm... I'd be like, do I look that stupid? I just spoke to Adam and we both spoke to God in the cool of the day. And you're going to tell me what God didn't tell me? I mean, where's the faith, ladies and gentlemen? They had God. They didn't have the Bible. They didn't need the Bible. They had God. And, and, and she is looking at the devil going, well, now, wait a minute. Let, let's just think about that. Maybe you're right. Maybe God's lost his rocker off of his rocker. Maybe he's lost his marbles. Maybe he really doesn't know. Look, listen to the listen to the argument. And the serpent said, woman, 
Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes are going to be opened, and ye shall be as gods, and then you'll determine what's good and evil. Verse 6, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also to her husband Adam with her, and he did eat. And right after that, God's going to come along now, and guess what? They're going to start to die. But that very day, God had to leave. Because of sin. By the way, that's true death. Separation from God for all of eternity in a place called hell. And because of that moment, you and I were plunged into, listen, a battle for truly what is good and evil for the rest of our life. You see, God gave us a will to determine what's right and wrong by his word, not by our judgment. We get told what is right and wrong, hopefully like you're teaching your children what's right and wrong. And then we say, "Okay, now, listen, we are saying this is wrong because God says it's wrong. And ultimately, he has to say, this is sin. Don't do that. This is iniquity. Don't do that. This is transgression. Don't do that. Here, here's the old paths. Walk ye in them. This is what I want you to walk. Now, that's the whole idea. You see. If we decide not to recognize him as a pretender, how are we going to recognize everything around us that's all a lie? What does Satan do? He lied. And he tricked her. God does. God knows. You ever have this thought? I'll just do this. I know God's going to forgive me. God said it's better to obey than to sacrifice. You have a thought, well, you know, as long as my wife doesn't or if my husband doesn't see me, As long as my kids are not around. That's not how it works. Whether anybody is present or not, when the tree falls, it still makes a noise. And whether anybody is present or not, if it's sin, it's still sin. The idea is that here Satan has plunged mankind into an eternal battle against God. And all I I journaled this morning in in my journal after my devotions. All I can see in the Bible is God has been since Genesis chapter three in pursuit of man. That's all I've seen. You ask people what they believe about, believe about God today. They say all kinds of things. Well, he's just some old man sitting up there with a club just waiting to slam people. No, that's not true. He is a loving shepherd of a father who has been in pursuit of his creation since that day in Genesis chapter three. And every time someone says no, it breaks his heart. Every time one of his children say no, it breaks his heart. But he doesn't stop. He's still in pursuit of what? Of redemption. For what sake? For redemption's sake. For the sake of the souls of mankind. For the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That it was not in vain. And so we've got to recognize him for who he is. He is a liar. He is a counterfeiter. And his strategy strategy is awful. So how do we do that? Well, let her be. Our safety is found in the Word of God. Mike said it earlier. He said, look, they don't show you a bunch of counterfeit bills at the bank to see what's counterfeit. They show you the real thing, and you handle it, and you feel the weight of it, and you see the texture, and you hold it up to the light, and you see the ink marks, and, and you see the different the different things that they've gone through now, great links of changing the paper and changing everything about the fibers and the feel of all of it just to make sure that when you handle a fake, you immediately know it's a fake. When you see it, when you touch it, it's it's evident to you that it's a lie, that this is not real. The Bible says in Hebrews 4 and verse 12, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow, listen, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. If I want to know if the devil's lying, I just got to get a hold of the truth. I just got to handle it. I got to read it. I got to put it in the places where he's battling me so that I know if this thought comes up, it's against God. And I know it's a lie. If this happens, I know this is a lie and it's against God. And then I can rightly decide. Oh, no, no, no. That's that's not the truth. That's a lie. I'm not falling for that. First John chapter two and verse 20. But ye have an unction from the Holy One, Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. You see, God's given us that. 
First John chapter four and verse one, beloved, believe not every spirit, but by but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are got out into the world. The devil and his henchmen are doing everything they possibly can to sow the wrong seeds. You remember the the uh, parable of the wheat and the tear? Remember that? It's an amazing, amazing parable that Jesus gave. And he said, look, here's the servant. They went out and sowed in the middle of uh, the next day. They came out and the, the servants went back and they said, hey, look, I don't. Did you sow something? We didn't. We sowed all of this good wheat. And yet there are tares in the middle of it. Should we go out and pick up the tares? And the master says, no, no, don't do anything about the tares. We'll just wait until the harvest. When the harvest comes, we'll gather the tares and we'll throw them into the fire and burn them. And we'll gather the wheat into my barn. Well, the disciples are like they're fishermen. I don't get it. So they go to Jesus. The, the next the next evening and they go, look, I we, can you just we're dumb. And can you tell us that what what does that mean? Well, Jesus says, OK, here it is. The sower is the son of man. The wheat is the good seed. That's my children. The tares are been sown by the evil one. And the gathering is the end of the world. My angels, I will send and they will take up the tares and they will throw them into a Christless hell where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth and they will gather mine into my garner. And they were all like, whoa. Now, here's the great thing. I'm sorry, not the great thing, the awful thing. The awful thing is Satan sows tares everywhere. Wherever there's a real thing, you can always guarantee there's a counterfeit thing. Wherever there's a Christian... There is a fake close to that Christian. You know why my personal belief is? Because that fake will do more to destroy what the real deal is trying to do by what they are doing or not doing. If you have a real Christian that wants to live for Christ, trying to keep his his or her life holy for God, trying to do things according to his will, and then you get this tear that comes in and say, oh, you don't do that. Someone will say, oh, they'll say, well, how come you say that you're a Christian and they're a Christian, but you're not like them? Oh, that's because they're too uptight. They don't know grace. They don't know all about the spirit. They don't know enough about the Bible. And the devil will convince another person who's lost that because there's no two things that are alike that are supposed to be like Christ, that there must not be any need for Christ. Why do I need to be like that? I'm already like that. I definitely don't want to be like that. Because if I become like that, I'm no longer like this. That's the game. Satan is a counterfeiter. That's why Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and he said, look, you need to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. You need to know and the church needs to know Are you saved or are you not? Are you living a lie? Because you're not helping the cause of Christ by living a lie. Somebody testify. The right right thing is to know absolutely for sure that you are on your way to heaven. And when that heart change happens, it's supposed to be coming out. Now, the fact of the matter is, Satan is against that. Why? Because he doesn't want anybody else changing. We're told to do all that we can to stand against the devil And when a believer is taking a break from their Bible or devotions, a vacation from the house of God, Satan doesn't want to uh, Satan doesn't want them to see that they are not doing all to stand. He wants to cover their eyes. Oh, I'm just taking a break. Yeah, we're not going to this service now and we're not taking part in this. and We're not serving here. and We're not giving and we're not doing. I'm just taking a break. I'm not just and and Satan is so. Oh, that's cool. You deserve a break. You shouldn't have to be down there all the time. It's COVID. You, 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 you shouldn't be, you shouldn't have to be involved. You need to spend more time with your family. You need to have more things to do. You need to sign them up for this board and sign them up for that activity. You need to take more vacations. You need to get out. Satan does not want us to think in our minds, we're not doing all to stand. And it's working. Isn't it? I know it's worked on me. It works on me all the time. Pastors are not privy. We don't have some Captain America shield so that we don't have the wiles of Satan. He likes to preachers all the time. About what? Well, normally not about the Bible. 
Normally it's about people. See, it's the same for everybody. Nobody is exempt. Why? Because the Spirit of God led Jesus to be tempted of Satan. And the Bible says when Satan was done, by the way, that he only left him for a season. And then he would be back. Are you doing all to stand? Because if you're not doing all to stand, listen carefully. According to the Bible, you will not be able to withstand. So let's look at the last thing. Yeah, we need to recognize him. We need to respect him. But we also need to resist him by faith. I cannot resist him if I am not recognizing his works. Does that make sense? I've got to be able to identify. And as we spoke, the only way I can identify is by staying faithful in the word of God. Ladies and gentlemen, can I just stress again the importance of you being in the Bible every day? And on your knees every day. And in the house of God, when the door open, why? Because Satan doesn't take a break from the house of God. Satan doesn't take a break from his devotion to his cause. And we think because we have fire insurance that my mind is not going to be easily swayed. We think that because somehow the Spirit of God indwells us and God and Satan can't possess us, that, that we have some, this, some foolproof, like, like, like we have, there's no kryptonite. But there is. It's called sin. And as it's presented in the way that kind of sounds almost right, we'll make a wrong decision every single time. What's the pattern? The Bible. Another reason that the Old Testament is there. Because when you do things that are right in your own eyes, you've decided to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Resist him by faith. Remember, the Bible says, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Now, you are not the only target of Satan. And you've got to think about this. There are believers all over the world that are sitting in prisons that have been buried. There are Christians all over the world that are sitting in hospitals or holding up in apartments or closets. All because the Holy Spirit is directing them into the truth and to obey the truth. And for that... They're being sorely punished for that, for doing what we have the full right and the freedom to do. We have every opportunity to stand against the wiles of Satan, not even the physical persecution. But we're not the only ones. Yes, Satan is a pretender. Yes, he's dangerous, but you can resist him. You can win. How? By your faith in God. Just like David took his stand against Goliath and trusted in the name of Jehovah, just like Daniel took his stand against an unrighteous law in the name of God, so we can take our stand against Satan in the victorious name of Jesus Christ. Listen to the verses about the name of Christ, some of them. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. Under the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 and verse 10. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, of things in the earth, get it, and things that are under the earth. It is ordained that Jesus Christ is the Savior and the Lord and Christ of all. There is no other name above His name. There is no greater name than Jesus' name. And at the name of Jesus, Satan has to bow. But not if I'm not living like it. If I can't wear Jesus' name on the outside of me, why would I think that I could resist Satan on the inside? Ephesians 6, uh, or let me, let, me, let, me, let me go this way. Let me give you three things and we're done. Unless we stand by faith, we cannot withstand in the faith. Wherefore, take unto you a whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. You cannot resist the devil if you're not walking with God by faith. You can't. You cannot. There's no way. And we're going to see that. We're going to see it in Saul's life. By the way, keep this in mind. Saul is the character. A pastor friend of mine said this to me this last week, and I was like, man, you are so right. Saul is the character when you read him, you're just kind of rooting for him. Like, come on, Saul, you can do it. Oh. All right, batter up again, Saul. Oh, he struck out again. 
Come on, Saul, I know you can do it. I know you got it in you. And you're just rooting for him and rooting for him. Why does he fail, as we'll see? Because he won't walk by faith. He refuses to walk by faith. And because he's not walking by faith, Satan's just weaving his way in there and he weaves them all the way until the day that he and his son die. So sad. You can't resist the devil if you're not walking by faith. You trust your trust in God's word is the foundation of your obedience. And Satan cannot stand against any child of God living by faith. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds and casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought into the obedience of Christ. Do you understand that? If Eve would have been like, wait a minute, wait a minute. That thought is like exceeding what I know about God. And that's not the God that I know. The God that I know is faithful and he's true. And there's no variableness, no shadow of turning. That does not make sense. So I, in the name of Christ and what I know in the word of God, I'm going to believe the promises and all that's being lied to me falls down at the ground. And has to be subject to whom? The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Now, that's the power of resisting because God's given us that power. I have the ability to overcome the world. How? By faith. My trust in God and his promises. Unless we stand by faith, we cannot withstand in the faith. It says resist steadfast in the faith. Letter B. Before we can stand before Satan, we must bow before God. Now, James and Peter agree here. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Period. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. See the order? Don't leave for work. Don't leave on a trip. Don't leave to come home before you're submitted to God. Because if the devil has a counterfeit will for your life when you get home for work and you're not submitted to God, there's no way you're going to resist what he's trying to do when you get there. There's no way. Why? Because you're not submitted to God. I can't do all things without Christ. I can only do all things through Christ. Right? Before we can stand before Satan, we've got to bow before God. Let us see. Don't believe that you don't need backup. Don't believe that you don't need backup. Remember back in our text how the Bible says that Saul also went home to Gibeah and there went with him a band of men? There went with him. What was God doing? Because God already knew what was going to happen to Saul. He not only prepared Saul, but he prepared people around him to make sure that he stayed walking by faith. Are you a... You're a mercenary Christian? I work alone. Don't need anybody else. I'm good to go. Watch pastor on the tube. Drink my coffee, eat my donut in my pajamas. Don't need to be at church. Don't need to be around other Christians. Don't need to go to retreat. Don't need to go to an activity. I'm good. I work alone. No, you don't. If you do, you don't work very well. Because God never intended for Saul to be by himself. And he never intended any saint of his to be by himself. He never did. Never. Never. He never intended him to be by himself. Remember when Elijah, remember Elijah's like, God, I'm the only one. I've been working out here alone, calling down fire, killing people, taking names, doing all this stuff. And I'm all by myself. It's just not fair. God said, that's not true. Actually, because I'm God, you're not the only one. There are others. And you need to know that, Elijah. You need to know that other people are going through things like you and they've not given up either. And your testimony can help somebody else not to give up either. Amen. You, you, you don't have to be alone. I've never created you to be that way. And I want to help you. Elijah, wake up. Okay. What happens when you think you operate alone? Jonah. Jonah happens. You get swallowed by a well, barfed by a well, smell like a well, go to Nineveh, preach. God doesn't work in spite of you, and you're not happy about it, and you die under a gourd. Happy Jonah. That's what happens when you think you've got to live by yourself. You turn bitter 
against a righteous God. Look, the fact of the matter is, God didn't save you to be alone. You need backup, and so do I. We need backup. I need backup. I'm not charging hell with a squirt gun anytime soon, but I know this. Going out into the highways and hedges, not by myself, will do a whole lot of wonders for everybody involved. Had Peter obeyed these three instructions, the night Jesus was arrested, he wouldn't have gone to sleep in the garden. He wouldn't have attacked Malchus, and he wouldn't have denied the Lord. He didn't take the Lord's warning seriously. In fact, he argued with the Lord. Nor did he recognize Satan when he, when the adversary inflated his ego with pride, told him that he didn't have to watch and pray like Jesus told him to do, and then incited him to use his sword, which wasn't what it was for. Had Peter listened to the Lord and resisted the enemy, he would have escaped all of those failures. As a Christian, I am commanded to stand against Satan and to withstand his attacks by yielding to the Holy Spirit so that I can be changed into another man. The only man who has a perfect winning record against Satan, Jesus. I'm going to believe something. The question is, what will I believe? I'm going to yield to someone. The question is, who will it be? Now, I'm going to either be the same old man or I'm going to become the new creature or the new man that God saved me to be. So what about you? Are you on your way to heaven? Do you know for sure if you died today that you'd be in the presence of God? If he said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Do you have Jesus Christ as your savior or not? Look, the fact of the matter is Jesus died to rescue you from your sin. He died to save your soul from hell. He's been pursuing you all of your life. And if you'll come to him, he'll save you. Now, if you have and you've trusted Christ as your personal Savior, and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're on your way to heaven, but you're not living like it, then Satan's having his way with you. If you're not faithful into his word, and faithful on your knees, and faithful in obedience, you have nothing to stand. There's no legs to stand on. Why? Because the just shall live by faith. And yet God says, look, you can do this, but you have to do it steadfastly. You can only resist Satan steadfastly in the faith. Let's determine today to say no to Satan and yes to God. To be steadfast in our faith. Don't make, I I told the guys on Wednesday night, don't don't make a foolish commitment. Well, bless God for the next six years. I'm going to commit to God for the next year. That I'm just going to read. No, no, no. Just do it today. God, I'm going to commit today that I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to commit today. I'm going to commit a good portion of time to to your word and on my knees. And I, 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 want, I read it today. I'm going to be still and I'm just going to know you. I'm going to be okay with that. I'm going to start there. Because Satan is waiting for me out there. And in many cases, in my case, he's not waiting out there. He's waiting in the same room. And he's waiting to see, am I going to bow before I try to stand? Or am I just going to get up and try to stand foolishly on my own? Let's not be that. Let, let's, not, let's not turn into what we know Saul is going to be here shortly. And let's, let's make sure that we recognize who the liar is. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. Thank you so much, uh, Lord, for caring for us and for loving us. And um, Lord, I, I, I know that all of us have been lied to so much in our life. And God, if we were honest and we were to tell the truth today, we know that we've, believed too many of Satan lies and as I wrote Lord he's won far too many victories in this room alone Lord we look at the landscape of our state of our country of this world and we can see that it seems like Satan is winning and probably he's winning more battles than he should so let me back up and say Lord though he may be winning a lot of battles we're thankful that you finally win the war And one day it will all be over and he'll be cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. And the heat and the smoke of your judgment will never be put out. But God, until that day that we're called home, until that day that our enemy is finally put in his place by the Almighty God, the minute that we decide to live by faith, we're entering into a war, a battle. 
a battle for the souls of mankind, for the kingdom of God, for the righteousness of God. And Lord, I, I just confess to you today, Lord, that I want to be a faithful soldier. I want to endure hardness. I want to fight the good fight of faith. And Lord, I believe there are other Christians in here with me that want to resolve to do the same thing today. Lord, before we go there, we've got to admit and confess where we failed you. So during this invitation, I pray that you would see the hearts that are open, that you would hear the cries for the mercy that you always hear. Or that you would forgive, that you would strengthen, and that you would equip us, help us to be not the same person that we were when we got saved. Lord, even today, help us not to be the same person who came in here. Help us to be changed into your image. With heads bowed and eyes closed, would you just stand to your feet with me this morning? I'm going to have Miss Jenna play, and as she plays, would you just take a few minutes and spend time with the Lord? The altar's open. If you'd like